What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both through their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you're enjoying the show, you should leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the best ways to give back and support the show and help other people find it. So I really appreciate it. And today's episode, I sat down with Rob Walling, the founder of Tiny Seed. Rob is somewhat of a recurring guest on the show. I like talking to him because he has such a wide perspective of what's going on. He was a founder and a bootstrapper. He grew his company Drip to an exit worth many millions of dollars. He now invests in companies at Tiny Seed, where he gets a very wide purview to see all sorts of trends and opportunities. And so in this conversation, we talk about what it takes to start a successful SaaS company as an indie hacker in October 2020. Not 10 years ago, not five years ago, but right now, today. We cover the different trends and opportunities that you should be aware of. We ask the question whether or not you should start an info product instead of a SaaS company, given how crowded and competitive SaaS has become. And we take a look at how some of Rob's portfolio companies are coming up with their ideas, finding their niches, and competing in such a crowded market. It's obviously a lot to cover, but I really enjoyed this type of conversation and I hope to do this format more often. So I hope you enjoy the episode as well. What are some new things you're seeing with SaaS companies today then? I mean, I think there's quite a bit because, you know, marketing channels that everybody thinks about, they all have a half-life, right? So cold email started getting big in 2011, 2012 when predictable revenue came out and it worked really, really well in the early days and then it started working less well. And now what I'm seeing is it works in some niches that are not overly saturated with it. But if you're using cold email to get on a podcast, for example, Cortland, I don't know how how many emails you get. I think we get so about many. 20 or 30 a week. And I've yeah. literally let one person on the podcast in 10 years from a cold email. <laughs> <laughs> so so those are the types of things where, but I bet that, but pitching cold email to get on a podcast, I bet that actually worked five years ago or something because no one was doing it, right? And there are still like niches, like verticals where um, like the interior design space, for example, because we have a, a company in batch one of Tiny C called Gather and cold email works for them because it's just not this oversaturated, everyone sending it to startup founders you right. know, and designers and, and, and whatever. So there's a lot new in the sense that old marketing approaches start to to wither a little bit. It is, I'm not saying they don't work anymore because there's so many classic you know, things that are going to work forever, but you just have to figure out what the new tactics are. I think some things that, that are certainly still working today, perhaps better than ever, like integrations are such a huge piece. Integrations are one of the few, it's, they're a moat. You think about Zapier. Like, could, would, you ta- mm. would you compete with Zapier today? Probably not. But it's I mean, n- I personally would not, but yeah, I've yeah. seen some people who are trying it. And yeah. uh, it's hard to say whether it's going well or not, but like I think you've got a good point, the integrations being like integrations a huge move because they just have so many more than everyone else. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we saw. So with Drip, which is email service provider, marketing automation provider that, that I built with a co-founder, sold in 2016, as you already referenced, we had 35 integrations in the first 18 months, and that was such a big like lock. Lock-in is not the right word because we weren't locking our customers in, but it was just something that no one else had, you know, and then there was right. the co-promotion. It's one of the very few, in fact, it's one of only two marketing approaches that both allow you to expand your reach to, as a marketable event and help existing customers, you know, because you think about SEO, SEO doesn't help existing customers, right? Cold Facebook, cold email, Facebook ads, they don't help existing customers, but integrations and content marketing are the two bottom of the funnel content marketing where you're actually educating your existing customers. So I would say those things are new. I think the other thing is, everyone keeps saying it. I heard from some people, oh, it's not helpful to hear this, but it is more competitive, bottom line, because SaaS was a, wasn't a was even a word 15 years ago. And then it became a word sometime between, I don't remember, 2005 and 2008. And then more and more people, and, and there were all these niches where you could launch a SaaS and no one was there. And of course, now there are very, very few of those. So what I think is different, even between, let's say, five or 10 years ago and today is, to kind of shoot for one of these unfair advantages to get into a, you know, to build something sustainable in SaaS. And I think being early is, is one. Sometimes requires luck. Sometimes there, there's skill involved, but being early to a space. Example of this is uh, Barometrics. Like Josh was early to the Stripe ecosystem. It was before anyone else had done this one-click OAuth thing. And that was, that was the novelty. Now the fifth person, you know, the fifth startup that did that, it was just less novel and they didn't grow as fast as Barometrics did. 
And then I think the other two pretty powerful things are, there's three actually, um, having an audience, which I'm going to talk about because I got into a, a, a kind of a Twitter conversation about the true value. Like if I didn't have an audience today and I was going to launch a SaaS, is it worth spending the time to build an audience today to launch that SaaS too? And m- you know, my thought is no, it's not. But if you already have an audience, yeah, there's a huge advantage there. Um, and then the other one is, there's another one that's your network, right? You look at how Nathan Berry grew ConvertKit and it wasn't through his audience because through his audience, he's, it was at about 1500 MRR after two years or 18 months. It was his network, you know, that, that built it. And same with uh, me with Drip. I mean, there's been a bunch we've seen where if Noah Kagan's really good at this. And then the last one is this kind of unique ability. It's, it's like, growth, but growth at a higher level, like the growth chops, like one of the few in the world has, like, again, Noah Kagan knows growth really well. Sushan Patel, Ruben Gomez with bid sketch and doc sketch, like he knows SEO, like very few people. So if you have that, you can go into a space, even a really competitive one, cause like Ruben's in, in the uh, document, the electronic signature space, which is a nightmare, right? It's like you have DocuSign, you have HelloSign, you have all these things. Um, yeah. But having that ability to get in there and find that proprietary traffic channel and just own it, that's a big deal. So that was a long answer, but those are kind of some new, like newer things or newer trends. I think if someone's trying to get into SaaS today, these are the things I'd be thinking about. And you're being humble here, but one of the the newest trends that's been on my radar here is that as a bootstrapper-minded SaaS founder today, you can actually raise money. And it doesn't mean giving up uh, entire control of your company and having to be a slave to this 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 goal of uh, you know hitting a unicorn valuation and having to hire and grow faster than is healthy for you, you can actually kind of grow at a normal rate and still get funding and sort of de-risk your your business. And that's kind of what you're doing at Tiny Seed. And there just seem to be like a ton of companies and funds and just like vehicles for investing in people who five ten years ago had really no hope of raising any money whatsoever. So we've got that to talk about. We've got all the stuff that you listed. Maybe a good place to, to start is with this. This sort of audience first mantra in this tweet that you, you made. So people have been saying this forever that what you want to do if you want to find an audience or a, a customer base for your product is you want to build your audience first. So that means you write helpful stuff online and you put out helpful tweets and blog posts and eventually you get lots of followers on Twitter and you get lots of people on your mailing list and then you can sell products to them because it's super easy because you've got you know the distribution channel figured out. You've got all these people who want to hear from you. But your tweet I think it was a couple of weeks ago, you said building an audience first, while it's still good advice when selling info products, it's much less so good advice when you're selling a SaaS product. And that's because ultimately people buy info products and SaaS products for different reasons. So why don't you talk to us a bit about that? Like, What does that mean and why do you think it's not super helpful to build an audience when you're trying to launch a SaaS product? Yeah, I mean, I, I think such a big part of this is Info marketers, which I've, I, hey, I'm an info marketer too. I, I market information. I have three books. I run a conference and events I would think of. They're a community, but there's information aspect to that. I used to have an online course. I don't really anymore. But so I've done both. And by far, having the audience with when I'm selling books or information or education is incredibly valuable. And I think that's probably the only way I would go, you know, if I was going to, again, sell books, courses, and stuff like that. With SaaS, hour for hour, dollar for dollar, pound for pound, there are so many better marketing channels that when you're selling a tool that helps someone get something done. Because really quickly, man, if you build an audience of 10,000 email subscribers, for example, you can sell a book to a thousand of those people. That's not out of the question. And whatever, you sell the book for, you know, $30, you sell the course for $100 each, and suddenly you're talking about, you know, $100,000 launch to 10,000 people. That's not even that hard to do. I bet you could sell, you know, to, to more than 10% of your list. With SaaS, it just doesn't wind up, wind up that way because in general, your audience, they don't all have the same pains that need to be solved month over month at a price that makes sense to charge them. So there's, yeah, there's just a big difference. So again, if you already have an audience, of course, it's an advantage. But if I was starting today with zero audience and I wanted to launch a SaaS, that would not be something that I would be doubling down on. I think it's an interesting point when you're talking about like what percentage of your audience actually wants the thing that you're building. And for SaaS products, it's usually much lower than Envo products, as you mentioned. And I wonder why that is. Because when I look at people who are building Envo products, they're often cultivating an audience specifically around a topic that they know their audience is going to want to be interested in that they're going to buy. So Adam Wadden is a famous example of this. I had him on the podcast last year. 
he grew his Twitter account from something like a thousand followers to thirty thousand followers in a year, just tweeting out these helpful design tips targeted at developers. And he just got super good at being helpful about this stuff. Tons of people joined his mailing list. Tons of people followed him on Twitter. And then he wrote a book about design tips for developers. And he made something like four hundred grand in his first day and a million dollars in his first month, which are just outrageous numbers. But it's because, in my opinion, a huge percentage of the people who bought the book were also people who enjoyed his tweets. Like he wasn't tweeting about random personal stuff in his life. He wasn't like, you know, he didn't have a random hodgepodge of topics. He was only tweeting about this one topic that he wanted to write a book about. And now for future info products, he can write other books or other courses about kind of a similar topic and it makes sense. Like his Tailwind CSS product is again, (laughs) kind of like design for developers. And I wonder, you know, in your experience, you've got a lot of experience with SaaS companies. Most of the companies you've invested in have not built an audience before they started their SaaS products. But for the few who have, like, were they building an audience in the direction of their SaaS product? Or were they building an audience that had really nothing to do with what their SaaS product ended up being? Yeah, no, that, that's a good way to think about it. I'm trying to think of specific examples. There are so few people who build audiences specifically for SaaS. They often do build it for info products and then they stair-step their way up to SaaS. So that could be a way uh, of diluting it, you know, to your point, that the reason that audiences may not work as well is if they're not designed specifically for that. One big example I can think of, and it's only an N of one, but it's it's a big name info marketer who we would, would know his name if I mentioned it. He built this list of, I believe it was half a million who were following him. And it's something, there's something about when you build a really big list, there's a lot of aspiring founders. There's a lot of people who want to do something. And so they're willing to mm-hmm. buy a book about doing the thing and and then never read it. So that's a big part where you can sell a course for $100 or $1,000 by promising this is going to show you the way because a lot of people will buy it and then never consume it and they don't, you don't then get a cancellation because you've already sold it. And that's where the moment you introduce an t- ongoing tool of like, hey, this tool will now help you put in the work and get it done. Within three months, everyone gives up or the you know a vast majority give up. I do think that's a big piece of it, right? Is that info products in general have that it's that there's an aspirational aspect to it and there's a one-time sale aspect to it. And so anyways, I watched this info marketer build this massive, massive list and he was making like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on these launches, maybe a million bucks. And then he went to launch a WordPress plugin and he tried to do it on subscription and it didn't, it didn't work because people would sign up and they'd cancel because no one actually wanted to put in the work. Then he went to a one-time fee and he made boatloads of money again and said, well, now I can go to SaaS. So then he launched a SaaS and got his ass handed to him because, again, the people didn't want to put in the work and they didn't want to stay subscribed to something. He was educating people how to make money online and so it was like landing page builders and, and Stripe integrations and this and that. And when you were telling people, here's the ebook to learn how to do it, they were buying it. W- WordPress plugin, maybe they're willing to take a leap. Once it was SaaS that they were trying to buy, they didn't want to put in the work to actually build the business. you know. Yeah. And, they, and they let it go. So I think that's maybe the paradigm I'm thinking in. And I'm trying to think there's so few people... You know, I think Ben Orenstein is one who built a list. He runs Tuple uh, with his co-founders. And he built a list that is developers, and then he launched a pair programming tool. But that pair programming tool was already built and acquired and shut down by Slack. The exact same idea, you know, was was done two or three years ago. So the market was validated, and that was a huge gap that they entered into, which is a huge luxury, you know. And and they did a good job, and they implemented well. But I I would venture to say that if Ben had zero audience he'd probably be approximately at similar, you know, order of magnitude as he is today. Maybe it was some advantage, but Mm. should he have stopped and spent a year building an audience while they were writing code? I would say that, you know, for sustainable SaaS growth, cold email and SEO chops and a network and integration, they're just way more valuable than having this audience because you burn through the audience. That's another big thing, right? You burn through it quickly. You don't launch five SaaS products in a year, but I've seen people launch five info products in a year. And the reason is, is because you need new stuff for that audiences because audiences tend to be static. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, Nathan Barry uh, is, is being someone who had built an audience. Like I was subscribed to Nathan Barry's list Many years ago, I was reading his blog. He's putting out so much stuff for aspiring founders. And then he launched ConvertKit, which is this basically you know, email marketing software. And like you said, he stalled. His revenue stalled. And I had him on the podcast like right after I started the Indiacus podcast. And he told me the story of how his revenue stalled. And it didn't really matter that he'd written this ebook and built this audience and had a lot of you know, email subscribers. And like the way that he broke out of that was kind of like 
number one, appealing to his actual network, which is not quite the same thing as an audience. It's people that he actually knew that he could have you know, one-on-one conversations with, whereas an audience is kind of like, I think it's more of like a broadcast channel. You send an email to thousands of people, you write a tweet to tens of thousands of followers. But he also did a lot of like, Another tactic that you mentioned that you know doesn't work quite as well anymore, but like just cold outreach. He would just email individual bloggers and people and say like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And he just got so much feedback by doing this sort of thing that didn't scale, and so many like sales from doing that that it kind of kickstarted his growth. And that was kind of the the main lesson from my podcast episode with him was like, what kickstarted his growth was just this cold outreach. So again, you know, despite building this huge audience, it didn't really translate into success for his SaaS business. And yet, this advice to build an audience persists. I think it's because a lot of people that are saying it are tend to be information marketers. Like there's very few Silicon Valley SaaS founders. Like look at the big Silicon Valley companies or anybody that gets venture funding and is growing a SaaS company. You don't hear them saying build an audience. You typically hear it from the the Twitter sphere and the bloggers and the info marketers. I mean, that's you know, and, and building an audience again is is not a bad thing to do. You and I have both done it. Right. And, and it's amazing. If you want to build a podcast in a community, yes, build an audience. You know, if you want to build a SaaS company, I would say, yeah, again, I, I think it's just a little less. But earlier, I mean, do you feel like, can you think of an example of us that you know of, of a SaaS founder who built an audience beforehand and really, t- and I don't mean an, a launch list because I, you know, when I was launching Drip, of course, I built a launch list of people who wanted to sign up for this new ASP, whatever. But my audience who was following me, the podcast and my email list and my blog and everything, they were more, they're startup founders, right? And I was definitely targeting drip at startup founders, but it it's not like I cultivated the whole audience around email marketing. I was not the email marketing guru. And I'm having trouble thinking of anyone, <laughs> anyone who has done that. Can you think of a, an example? I mean, this example kind of blurs the line between what you would consider an info product and SaaS, but... I think Peter Levels has done like an undeniably like phenomenal job building an audience. He's probably the best person when it comes to building in public. Like he'll sit down, like put up a Twitter poll for like what should I build next? Put up like his mock-ups in public, like just tweet every step of the process. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't care if it looks crappy. Uh, lots of people like seeing what he's building and he ends up attracting lots of different makers. And then he's kind of building for these makers. And his first product Nomad List like, I don't know, maybe you would call this an info product, but it's essentially a bunch of information about like which cities did you travel to? Except rather than being something that he manually updated himself all the time, it's kind of this living, breathing website where the community members themselves are constantly updating this data. And he doesn't have to do like a crazy amount to keep it fresh because it's kind of crowdsourced data. And then he sold access to his community. And then off the back of that, since he had so many digital nomads who were using this, he built Remote OK, his job board. And if you are basically a developer looking for remote work, or pretty much any job looking for remote work, you can go there and find a job, and it works the same way as any other job board, which again is not necessarily an info product. It's not a course or an ebook, but it kind of is just like this you know, marketplace connecting two different people, and it's not quite like a SaaS product with a ton of features. I would lean towards calling it SaaS, but like, I think he did a pretty good job converting his audience into users. But I also think a lot of his users just come from like search engine optimization and these other channels. And I'm not sure how much of his Twitter following, which is substantial at this point, it's close to 100,000. I'm not sure how many of them are actually remote OK users. Right. At a certain point, the growth has to turn from your audience to these, these flywheel channels, the SEOs, the cold outreach, the advertising, because you just, no matter how big your audience is, you tap it out. And when I look at Nomad List, does he have a, like when I think of SaaS, I think of someone paying a subscription, usually for a tool. I mean, two-sided marketplaces, they're on the line, as you said, of if one site is paying, then maybe that's SaaS, but it's more subscription software. But is there, is Nomad List, uh, do they monetize with advertising, aside from the job board, do they monetize with advertising or is there some type of subscription? So, Yeah. There's advertising and there is also a subscription. So he's got kind of a community. It's similar to like, uh, let's say I had made Andy Hackers paid from the beginning. Right. You know, you have to pay, I think he just started charging like a dollar a month or something just to filter out spammers from the community. Right. But then it turned out like having a community was a very natural thing to do for like a bunch of digital nomads right. who like want social connection when they're traveling. So he actually makes a decent chunk of change from people paying a monthly subscription to this community. I think they get, you know, access to each other. They can, you know, leave comments on these different locations, just meet up with each other, which is, it makes sense, but again, I'm not sure, like, would you classify that as a SaaS company? So personally, I wouldn't. I think of that, like, that's like the Dynamite Circle or, like, Micropreneur Academy, which I, a community I launched in 2011, or Founder Cafe, or um, e-commerce fuel is a community. I don't, I mean, they're recurring subscriptions, but it is to be around other people. It's not a tool that I log into 
to manage my projects. You know what I mean? I think of SaaS more as tool-based. Right. And this is interesting. You and I could probably go down a whole philosophical rabbit hole around the definitions of what is SaaS. Like, is subscription software SaaS? Or does it have to be a tool to solve a business problem? Or Because communities and two-sided marketplaces, I do think, are kind of on the line there. So I don't know that it's you know necessary. That may be another podcast episode <laughs> that we want to dig into. But Well, this reminds me of, of what I would consider to be another trend. I, I find myself talking endlessly in the podcast nowadays about these info products about educating other people. And it seems like among indie hacker types, it's just becoming increasingly popular to make money through info products. And so like Peter Levels is a good example because he's so inspiring to people. He just posted a tweet the other day and he's like, year one, I was making 10 grand a month, year two, 20 grand a month. And it goes all the way to year six, seven, where last year he's making like 80 grand a month and this year he's up to 120 grand a month. And like he's got these like borderline info product community type things. And you see a lot of people you know, doing the same thing with Substack. You see people following on Adam Wathen's steps with uh, launching online courses. And it's not like info products are a new thing. But I think for a lot of people, when they look at the advantages between building an info product and building a SaaS business, it's starting to look like info products might be a better deal. And there's a lot more buzz, even in Silicon Valley nowadays, about info products and about like people with these Substack mailing lists and these people with these huge Twitter followings than I think there ever really have been in the past. And when I look at like why people want to start SaaS companies, often, especially if you're a developer, it's this dream of just having like not having to not do a ton of work and yet you get this recurring revenue. Right? You build this like money-making machine. And of course you and I know like it actually is a ton of work and you don't get to sit down and rest on your laurels. But like the dream is like, yeah, you, you create some widget, you build something, uh, you go to sleep, it keeps making money, the code keeps working for people. Whereas if you're doing a paid newsletter or a subscription thing like that, you've got to keep putting out content forever and you're never gonna be, be able to like chill, which sucks. And if you're doing an info product, it's usually this transaction that's upfront. People pay for it once, they don't pay for it again. And so you've got to write more books and courses in the future. And so it just seems like super effortful. And yet, people are, are really into it this year just because of how much money you can make and how quickly you can make it. So like, what do you think about you know, this sort of dichotomy? Like, Should indie hackers be thinking more about info products or should you know, is SaaS still viable despite being super competitive and taking a while to get started? Oh, SaaS is still super viable, but... I mean, this is the stair-step approach to bootstrapping, right? It's like, just just Google that phrase if you haven't. But uh, I wrote this post, I've done a conference talk on it, and it's start small with one-time uh, sales products, whether it's a WordPress plugin or an info product. There tends to be less competition. You tend to be able to gain confidence. You make your first dollar online. Again, building an audience is, isn't that hard compared to building and growing a SaaS company. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the info product phase or the info product attraction from our communities, our, our developer and early stage founders, has been around for as long as I can remember. Um, there was Patio11 launching his email marketing course back in 2011. I wrote a book in 2009 and launched an online paid membership site in 2010. Amy Hoy did something in the, I don't remember when it is, the early 2010s when she launched, you know, uh, what's it called? 30 by 500, is that right? Yep. There, there are, I mean, there's, there's legions, you know, of us, and, and we've been doing this for a long time. I think the probably rise in popularity has come around because of, well, a couple things. One is it, SaaS is more competitive, but I also think that, uh, that, you know, there's more and more people on the internet all the time, and there's more and more people in these communities all the time. And I do think that it's easier today, well, it's competitive, it's easier today to build an audience than it was pre-Twitter, you know, when it was just blogging and, and dig in essence, for those who remember Dig. I do think it's a perfectly viable and it's a great place to start if that's your thing. Now, some people don't want to build an audience. They don't want to build info products and they really do just want to run a SaaS. And they look at StairStep and they think, oh my gosh, I don't want to build this thing for now, get up to 100 grand, then I quit my job and then ne next I build a SaaS after that. To me, that's the most repeatable, most reliable way to do it. But mm -hmm. I, I understand if you just don't want to do that. I have many, many SaaS friends who just have zero desire and they really just do want to build you know, build the company. But multi-million dollar info product empires are, they've been around for as long as I can remember from back in the, you know, the, um, I'm trying to think, there's like Derek Halpern and there is, mm. there's just that whole, there's a whole crew that was in the 2005 to 2015 and they're all still around, but they, you know, they've shifted what they're doing. And this is now, I think, entering our sphere more. I think it's always been around though. I'm curious why, do you feel like it's more popular now or it's become more on your radar? Seems so. 
I think the point you made is a really good one that there's just more people online doing this kind of stuff. Like there are more people who can consume the content that you're putting out. Yeah. Twitter is bigger than it's ever been. Right? The tech industry has more participants than it's ever had. There's this whole no code movement. So now you have people who don't even code who are talking about starting like SaaS companies, which is crazy. But it just expands like the circle or the, the market of people that you can target, which I think allows for the people to just have more room to produce info products. There's also more platforms for producing this stuff. Yeah. So I mentioned Substack a couple times. And you've got this whole creator economy where like people from the non-tech world, ironically, have been using these tools created by people from the tech world to make a living online for many years now. There's like a lot of famous YouTubers, a lot of people get, getting rich off Patreon or Etsy or all these different platforms where they can just kind of be creators. But there hasn't necessarily been this platform for people from the tech industry. Like what, like in what way do people from the tech industry really make money by using some sort of platform to put out content? Like really like nothing, to be honest. They have to usually create their own sort of business, like Ben Thompson from Shatekery, or their own blog, and they roll their own like Stripe integration. But now we've got like Substack and like Ghost recently added pricing, and I think it's just becoming more like in vogue for people to use these platforms to put out content and build an audience. So that might be bolstering the numbers as well. And I think just like the the, the success stories are crazy. Like when you see how quickly people can make money doing this stuff. Drew Riley was on my podcast a few weeks ago. He started his newsletter Trends earlier this year, and he's already at like over 25 grand a month in revenue. I had a founder who wants to be anonymous, but like he had a couple months this year where he made over 500 grand in revenue from like a video course that he made. Like there's just so many people who want to learn how to code or who want to learn different skills and who are willing to like shell out money for like these info products. And I think when you look at even a lot of the SaaS founders I've interviewed, they frequently like get to higher revenue multiples and it's a little bit more scalable obviously and it's like, you know, they can kind of hire out and then you know take a step back as a CEO and they're not like sitting there writing code forever in the same way these info product people are like working kind of to the bone. But at the same time, it just takes so much longer to get there. Yeah. Most of the SaaS founders I talked to who are in millions of revenue have been working on their products for half a decade or a decade. Whereas a lot of the info product people are like, they started this stuff like last year years, and they're yeah. already building up to like, yeah. So I think there's something just inspiring about it. And it seems like, as you said, like with your stair step approach, if you're going to get into this, it's a really good first step to take. Yeah, yeah, and I I totally agree. It's it's a way to get there way faster and not do the long slow SaaS ramp of death. And then if you can build that that confidence, the tool belt, the marketing chops, and then you make money. I mean, if you do make hundreds of thousands a year now, launching a SaaS app becomes a lot easier, right? And that that's in essence what I did, um, and I've seen other folks do it. The thing that I will say is most people who I've seen do info products, they eventually get tired of it. Nathan Barry, you, you, you've interviewed him. Why did he stop writing his books? He was making hundreds of thousand dollars per launch. Well, he says it was a hamster wheel. Why did I you know, lean further into software? It was also, it was like, A, the value, the long-term value, the scalability, and the, the revenue multiples if I ever wanted to sell. There's no value in, I can't sell my personal brand. I can't sell Start Small, Stay Small. I can sell Drip for you know many times the revenue. And that became a new goal for me when I hit 35 or 37. It was like, yeah, I just don't want to be cranking out content anymore. So that's the, the flip side. But I also think that, that info products and, and courses and stuff are an amazing business. I do, I would say, if you look at Substack and Patreon and you know these other tools that enable the creators, those tools are that they're selling picks and shovels, right? To to the miners in essence. They're selling mm-hmm. the tools to get it done. And those companies will become worth way, way, way more than almost all the creators using them. You know what I mean? Or not almost, but all yeah. the creators using them. And so the real money, if you if that becomes the goal, like if you hey, I wanna, I don't want to be make a million dollars a year that I'm paying income tax on. I want to sell for $100 million and pay long-term capital gains on that because I you know, yep. built this, this sub-stack to $20 million in annual revenue or whatever. So again, it, it does depend on your phase. If I was in my 20s, my goals are different than if I'm in my 40s, you know, or, or just depends on phase of life and goals and, and really what you want out of it. But I, I love that we have these options. I, I think it's, on, it's only positive for our community that we do have the option to do info products and that they are shortcuts overstating it, but that they are definitely a shorter cut than uh, trying to build SaaS from scratch. And the line between, you know, what's an info product and like what's a SaaS company seems to be blurring a little bit, or at the very least I could say that info products look a little bit different than they used to be. Because back in the day it was like, you do an ebook or you do like a course. And like, that was kind of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much like the only info products. Whereas today I would say like, you know, obviously Nomad List is kind of like this weird blur. Like what even is it? Is it an info product? Andy Hackers itself, arguably an info product. It just started as a blog, but it kind of morphed into a community. 
and then like a lot of other like tools and resources for people. And so like if you're like me and you like coding, quite frankly, I would also get bored doing nothing but interviews all day, every day, and that's the only thing I do. But like I spend a great deal of my time like coding actual tools and utilities for indie hackers. And I think there's kind of this easy way to move from an Enver product into more of a tool. And Adam Wadden did the same thing with Tailwind CSS, where it's like, okay, I'm writing books, but like what if I created my own CSS framework and I charge like a subscription for like the community attached to that? And that's working really well for him. A lot of the people who have gotten into this are at that kind of like early phase of being an indie hacker where they're like, they don't have an idea and they're not sure what to work on. And because we're like the SaaS markets are so mature, I feel that people feel pretty intimidated when they look out there and they're like, I just can't find a niche to build a SaaS company in. Like, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Whereas when they look at Enver products, it seems like pretty easy to come up with an idea. I could teach people this. It's crowded, but it's so like, not winner take all that you can be like the 45th person to teach people react and still make seven figures a year from your react course yeah uh you mentioned earlier that you don't think SaaS has gotten to the point where it's too competitive or there aren't or there aren't new ideas how do you look at this you know how do people who are trying to concert like decide what to do how do they find a niche in the SaaS space yeah, I mean, there's obviously a bunch of different ways. I like to think of it in terms of just different frameworks or mental approaches, mental models to get in. One thing that I've seen a few people doing well, Craig Hewitt did this with Castos, which is podcast hosting, is first he started a productized service, which was podcast editing and production services. And he got that up to, I don't remember, 20, 30 grand a month. And, you know, it requires people to be involved. It's not software, right? It's a bunch of people doing stuff, but productized X hundred dollars a month. Then he was in the space, he was talking to people, and their WordPress plugin came for sale that was called Seriously Simple Podcast Hosting. And it is a plugin that you install on WordPress and you can you know, have a, have a podcast. So he acquired that for a very small amount of money. And then he built Castos, which is a, just a straight-up SaaS. It's, it's you know, platform agnostic. It's not only WordPress. It's subscription and it's podcast hosting. It's what I use for Tiny Seed Tales and you know, startups for the rest of us, Microconf on Air. And that's how he got into it is through this through line of these other kind of these other businesses that he started. And he didn't have, you know, with Podcast Motor, which was the editing service, he didn't have the long, slow SaaS rep of death. He got up to 20 or 30K within 12 months, maybe eight, 18 months tops. But then the real avenue to get into Castos, because starting Castos from scratch would have been really hard, was this acquisition. Very, I think he said it was on my podcast, it was like mid four figures or mid to high four figures. So it was like less than $10,000, I'll put. And if you if you have this product, I service doing 20, 30K a month, dropping five or 10 grand on something that allows you to basically get a leg up, get tens of thousands of free users that you can then learn from and, and build a SaaS on, that's a very small price to pay at that point. So I think purely just looking for avenues to like acquire something or adopt something if you don't have the money, I think is a really interesting idea. Yeah, I think that's, that's super interesting. I hadn't thought of that because I mean, essentially if the problem is that the markets are too competitive and like everything's already been done before, let's say you believe that, well then you can just buy something that's been done before and now it's your thing. And if you can get into that by selling an info product or by having a productized service like in your example, that seems like a really good place to start. A lot of people who are considering being indie hackers have the funds, even if they don't already have an M4 product. Like a lot of people are developers and they're like, well, I'm making like a lot of money working for Google and I want to build something on the side and, you know, earn my own freedom for my own product, but I have to quit my job, et cetera, or I have to work on the side. And I think often the answer is like, no, you don't. You can do exactly, you know, what you were doing 12 years ago, work a job, use your savings from your job to basically buy a SaaS company, you don't even have to take this first step of having an info product or a productized service. You can just use your developer salary to basically buy something. So I think that's a, a cool way to break into the market. But you've invested in like quite a few. I mean, in Tiny Seeds 2020 batch, I think almost all of your companies are SaaS companies, and like most of them are B two B. Like, how are they getting started? How do they yeah. how do they find these niches? Yeah, that's a good question. I was actually just gonna mentally run through them. Um, there are several where they were scratching their own itch. So there's like two of the companies are in the construction or related to construction. And both of the people who started them were in the construction space and the software is this downloadable Windows software, you know, so they want wanted to scratch their own itch in terms of making something better. So I think mm. you do have to decide, do you want competitor pain or customer pain, right? So Competitor pain is when you build an uh, email service provider because you have competitors everywhere. It's a feature race. It's like, oh my gosh, every day MailChimp and, and Drip and Klaviyo are, are launching stuff that I then have to compete with. So competitor pain is where it's a mess. Right. Customer pain is where it's much, much, much less crowded, like in the construction space, in the legal space. The software is shit. It's terrible. 
But now you have customer pain because these are folks that are non-technical. They're pretty hard to sell to. They tend to be a little price sensitive. The margins, especially in construction, aren't great. And the support is relatively high. Or if you're selling, you could build software for insurance agents, right? Independent insurance agents. And it's like, cool, there aren't that many competitors and the software's really bad. You can build great software, but now you're, you're taking that burden of, of a competitor. Right. Or I'm sorry, of the customer. So anyways, two, a couple of them are scratch your own itch. There are a couple that are subject matter expertise. So there's one called uh, in batch two called Dealforma, and it is a database of M&A and fundraising in the pharma in, in pharmaceutical big companies, uh, big companies and, and, you know, companies that are raising funding and all types of people buy this, right? A, a huge, Pfizer might want to subscribe to this. So they have info on who's raising money, who we might want to acquire. And then there's some brokers that buy it because they want to know what deals are happening or whatever. So Chris, the founder was kind of in the space and was looking around for this kind of data and realized he had a real expertise in, in processing this data and, you know, being able to produce it. So it is a SaaS, it's a subscription service, but it, it's it does border a little bit on the info. But they are, yeah, I mean, they're they're going out and pulling and, and sanitizing the data, and there's a lot of technology behind it that makes this thing really valuable. So there was a little bit of of industry knowledge there, and then I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, like Squadcast, you know, which you and I were talking about before we hit record. I guess they saw a. It wasn't. I think they were gonna. They were gonna start a podcast. They never did at the time, and so it wasn't necessarily scratch your niche, but it was seeing a need in the market of like there really wasn't yeah. a high quality way to record, you know. And so let's let's build uh, build this tool out. That's a good way to break it down. And I, I think the first two both require some degree of expertise because yeah. if you're solving your own problem, ideally you're an expert in at least in having that problem. Yeah. Like you know what it's like to have that problem and what you need solved. And like if you're not lucky enough, and I'll put lucky in quotes here because, like, you know, there's ways to just like be dedicated about identifying your problems. But if you're not lucky enough to have a problem that hasn't been better solved by competitors, then I think it can, it can be tough because a lot of people say, Well, I'm trying to solve my own problem, but like, I just don't have any valuable problems right. because they don't happen to work in, a, in, in an nascent industry like con- construction where tech is, is not really, you know, tech is nascent in that industry and tech hasn't really taken over. Right. And I've interviewed other people who are, you know, building SaaS for you know, real estate brokers and all sorts of industries that are just a little bit slower to adopt tech. So that seems to me like pretty similar to this idea of having industry knowledge. And then Squadcast, I think what's really cool about them is they're taking advantage of, like they found a gap by taking advantage of new technology that didn't really exist before. So before I used Squadcast for Indie Hackers, I used Zencaster. And the founder of Zencaster basically saw the same thing. Like, hey, there are these new browser APIs where you can actually like record live audio on the browser and upload it. And like this did not exist a year ago. And now I can take this problem and I can basically or take this new technology and I can basically build a product for podcasters that doesn't exist and I can be super early because no one else is doing this. And then I think Squadcast in a way leapfrogged Zencaster because one of the big issues with Zencaster is that you can't see the person you're talking to during the podcast. And so Squadcast is like, well, you know, the browser is making video chat better than it's ever been. Like, this is an opportunity. And so I, I think that's like another great way to find ideas. Like, what's actually new? What's possible that wasn't possible five or 10 years ago or, or even last year? And we're seeing a lot of this also with AI. Like, I just talked to a guy who's got uh, an AI-generated media company. And he's able to interview like a thousand founders in three months with like an AI bot, basically. And like, you, you see GPT-3 and people producing like these, these blog posts that you can't even tell they're not written by a human. And so like, who even knows what kind of companies are going to come out of that? But I think as a, as a founder, when you're looking out into the world and you're trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to work on? And you're dealing with this, I love the way you phrase it, like competitor risk versus customer risk. Both of those seem super scary, right? Oh, I got to build something like no one's ever built before. And like, I don't know if customers are going to like it. Or I got to find like some crazy super niche that like, you know, I'm not even sure where to even start looking to find one of these niches. Versus I got to build something that's already been built before. And that company is crushing everyone. And they have a million features. It's going to take me five years to catch up. Both of them seem... Uh, pretty challenging to, to deal with. Yeah, but they, they are, except for competitor pain these days. Personally, if I were to build another SaaS, I'd probably go after that. I know I do have the experience and some assets at my back to be able to do it, but I love the bigger markets. And oftentimes with competitor pain, all you do is find out why does everyone hate this competitor? So Salesforce is huge. You know there are people out there that don't like it. Why not? And can I build a product that is basically the opposite of Salesforce? Infusionsoft, back in the day, they're a marketing automation provider. They were big. They were growing fast. 
but there were a bunch of people that hated it. So when we pivoted Drip away from just being a little email capture widget, it was what is Infusionsoft doing poorly and what can we just just truck them on, right? QuickBooks. Everyone hated, (laughs) not everyone, some people hate QuickBooks. Zero came in and said, what do you hate about QuickBooks? Oh, it's not online. Oh, it's not easy. Oh, it's not this and that. There there are space, and those are really competitive spaces, but again, I wouldn't do it as a first step on my stair step. If it was the very first app I launched, like play high school, I was using analogy, play high school baseball, then play college baseball, then play um, single A, which is minor leagues, and then double A, then triple A, and then go to the pros. I would not go and compete against Salesforce or Infusionsoft or QuickBooks today if I had not played high school baseball. You know, and I think stair-stepping your way up can be a way to, to get into those uh, more complicated spaces uh, or more competitive spaces, I should say. I actually just pulled up a page from the State of Independent SaaS report from last year, and it's about how people developed or found the idea for their SaaS company. And you want to hear- The State of Independent SaaS report is, is a giant survey you send out to SaaS founders to yep. try to get all the information on how SaaS founders are coming up with ideas, starting companies, how much money they're making, how they're hiring, how they're distributing their products, et cetera. Yep, yep. And so we actually, we changed this question this year to have fewer in the other category because last year we had almost 13% said other when I said, how did you develop the idea for this product or company? But 50% said it was a specific problem I was experiencing. So that's scratch your own niche. 23% said it was a problem at my place of employment so I was working there. There was a problem. It wasn't being solved well. I figured I could go out and do it. And 15% said it was a problem a friend or relative was experiencing. And then of the 13% other, the, most of those were either, I didn't, I didn't build this. I bought it. I acquired it. I inherited it. I, you know, uh, I, you know, adopted it. Or several people said it was a product that I saw working but was being done poorly, and I basically copied it and tried to do it better. Mm. It was really interesting. So those are kind of the five ways that we're seeing. I think there's danger in just scratching your own itch. It's really easy to scratch your own itch and find out no one else has that itch to scratch. It's also very easy to scratch your own itch, find out there's 10,000 other people who have it, but that you can't reach them and sell to them, and they're not willing Mm. to pay for it. So there's a lot you have to validate. When people say, I'm scratching my own itch, I'm always like, but have you validated the next two or three steps, you know? Yeah, scratching your own itch is a good way to like generate an idea, yeah. but it's not validation that's of right. the idea, and that's a whole nother step you need to do after that. Yeah, I love this uh, idea of of targeting a a competitor who people hate. Yeah, like I interviewed the guys from Honey Badger, and I think I think they were like competing with this company Hop Toad, or like Hop Toad existed, and it was like this error tracking for your app. So if you build a website, uh, you want to know if there's bugs in your code. And when users run into bugs, like you don't want them to have to report them. You want like an automated email that's going to tell you, or like a dashboard you can go to and be like, "Oh, so and so ran into a bug on this page," but it sucked. It like somebody built it and they sold it, and then the person who bought it sold it again, and it just got kind of fell into disrepair. And everyone hated it. And so for the Hopto, uh, the Honey Badger founders, it was kind of like scratching their own itch because they were using it too and they hated it. But they can also see that like number one, like this is a validated product. Lots of people are using it. In fact, the company was big enough to be bought and sold several times. Uh, and so you kind of remove both the competitor risk and the customer risk. Like the competitor sucks, so you can beat them. And the customers are already there. They've been validated by the existence of a competitor. So I love the idea that you can find a place where people are really complaining about something and build there. And I've also seen you know, situations where people aren't complaining about something so much as they're just not super happy with it. So if you look at like the... Um, let's say like job search industry mm. where like developers are trying to find jobs at companies and companies are trying to hire developers. Like no one's ever been like, this is the last word in hiring and interviewing developers. We're so happy with this tool, we'll never use another tool. Like every year there are new tools that come out and people have their own different approaches. And like there's just never gonna be like one one winner take all product in that market. Same with education. Like no one's ever gonna be like, this is the school to end all schools and we'll never, you know, everyone's going to go to this school and no one's going to go to any other school or everyone's going to read this book and no one's going to read any other book. So these industries where like, I think people, you know, aren't overjoyed with what exists, even if they're not complaining, can also be a, an interesting place to look for, sort of eliminate both competitor risk and customer risk. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's a reason there's so much HR software coming out is that yeah. it's not a solved problem yet. No one's nailed the job search to your point no one's nailed like remote employee happiness. You know, there's 15.5 and there's a bunch of other tools, but it, it's a really challenging problem to solve, I think. And some of them are really idiosyncratic. Like it's impossible to nail 
the best way to teach somebody how to code. Yeah. Because everybody learns in different ways. And like that's really good if you're an indie hacker trying to get started because it means that like, okay, you've got it validated that people have this problem. But like no matter what, there's always going to be like space in the market for you to do things your own way and target some niche of customers who prefer it slightly differently. Yeah. I would agree. So what do you think about the importance of being early to a market? Because again, you've invested in a ton of companies and they've gotten started in different ways. And in my own experience with indie hackers, like indie hackers would in no way be where it is today if I wasn't kind of early mm-hmm. to doing what I was trying to do. How, but indie hackers is not a SaaS company. Right. How important is it for SaaS companies today to be earlier first to their markets? I mean, it would be, it's amazing if you can do it. Uh, it's a lot of luck or a lot of trying a lot of ideas and, and landing on one that works. People, again, coming back to Josh from Bear Metrics, he was early to the, the Stripe OAuth um, analytics and he took off real quick, right, in terms of the MRR growing. But he had three or four apps before that that just never got traction and he just kept putting them out, putting them out, putting them out and finally hit one. I have, mm. I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone be early to like three markets. It's just too, a little too much of a luck shot because think about like being early in WordPress, for example, meant that you were launching stuff between 2005 and 2008. That was early and it was really not clear that WordPress was going to be the winner among all the competitors because Word, WordPress was forked from another, there was Joomla, there was all this other stuff going on. Yeah. Being early, um, you know, I look at, at, uh, the Jamstack, which is like static site generation today, if you're going to be early to that space, you either, if you were building maybe a form endpoint, you need to be out like two, three years ago. And if you're building advanced CMS capabilities, you need to be doing it today. There's a huge amount of risk to that. You and I could go build a CMS and take six, nine, 12 months. Is, is static site going to grow like WordPress? We don't know. So, so that's the risk you take there. It's not customer risk, not competitor risk. It's, it's market risk, right? It's, or it's wave risk. Is the wave actually going right. to get big? Or is it just going to always be, hey, there's just 2 3% of the internet using it, and, and you're just never going to get traction. So I, I would love to be early. I've never been early to <laughs> any market because it is either it's a skill or it's luck, and I'm not, I'm not sure which of those, you know, which of those it is. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because even if you are early, it's not necessarily a recipe for massive success. Right. Like you can be the first and you can get it all right. Like you can be a super smart innovator who just sees this wave coming and you can build a product and, and you know start acquiring customers before everybody else. And then you could just like get the problem a little bit wrong. Yeah. Or you get the shape of the wave like a little bit wrong and somebody else comes along and they learn from all of your mistakes and they eat your lunch. Right. And it turns out that like being early like wasn't super helpful. You just sort of proved out the the market for everybody else who then like Capitalize on your mistakes. I've see, we've and seen so that when I think happen, about yeah, we've seen that happen several. Happens times, all actually. the time. Yeah, and when I think about like what, what companies actually succeed from being early, it's often companies with network effects. Where okay, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as like the quality or the value of your product is like directly proportional to the number of people using it, and you're getting people using your product before anybody else does. Then it's really hard to assault your position. So it's almost like you kind of want to build. The earlier you are, the more important it is to build some sort of moat. And there aren't that many moats in software. Like yeah. If you build like a, a super technical product, guess what? Like somebody else is going to come around next year, and they're going to have better developers with better tools. And they're going to build like the same thing that you did way faster than you did. And so I wonder, you know, when you look at your companies and uh, they're, they're all SaaS tools, like do you think about moats and do you think about okay, if they are early to the construction space or they are early to you know the healthcare space, what's stopping other companies from coming in and just doing the same thing? Yeah, we don't. Uh, of course, I'm aware of moats and I think about them, but you know, with with Tiny Seed, we don't invest to become to have these billion dollar outcomes, and so there's a lot of room to build a lot of five to thirty, fifty million dollar companies. You don't need as large of a moat. If you're going to win or take all, you need a moat. If you're going to build a ten million dollar SaaS app, I, there are just so many spaces you could do that. Uh, with that said. Oftentimes, the moat is not what we would traditionally think of or not what Silicon Valley would consider as the moat. Oftentimes, just having a founder that's a subject matter expert, deep, deep industry knowledge, and a co-founder that is a like really good technical founder, and you just have a two, three-year head start on anyone, that's actually, of course, it it's not a moat in the traditional sense, but that is an advantage, and it's a head start in a way that even if you took people who didn't really know what they're doing and gave them $5 million in venture capital, they wouldn't catch them. How many venture-funded ESPs, email deliverability things, did we see crop up? I can tell you a lot because I was running scared as we were running drip. And yet there were four or five of us in this closet bootstrapped in Fresno 
And we were, we were in the top 10 marketing automation providers. It wasn't because we had a bunch of money. We didn't really have much of a mode aside from integrations and some, some brand equity because Drip started to get a name. We were just ahead of people and we cared more. And we had a, probably a little bit more industry knowledge because I'd been doing email marketing since 2005, you know? And so, yes, we, of course, we would love a moat, but a lot of times, you know, you look at like, like Doc Sketch, I'll bring him up again, Ruben Gomez. He doesn't necessarily have a moat, it's e signature, it's electronic signature. Anyway, it's a commodity at this point, but his moat is his, um, he's just a really good marketer and he takes these channels. And to try to beat him at, let's say, SEO, content marketing, um, lead generation, very, very hard. There are a few, you know, how many, how many people in the world are better than Ruben at these things? I don't know. There's probably hundreds, but what are they working on? Are they working in the e-signature space? You know, you don't have to be the best marketer in the world. You just have to be right. better than the people you're competing against. And again, it's not winner take all. So what if you only take 5% of the e-signature market still you know, quite large and, and big enough to build a really profitable and life-changing SaaS, SaaS company. The last trend I think that's worth talking about is this idea of the micro SaaS. I did a tweet, uh, it was kind of a poll a few weeks ago, just asking, you know, here's a few different industries, a few different trends, like what are you most excited about? And micro SaaS won hands down. And the micro SaaS is this idea that you are targeting just a super niche market. It's a company that's usually run by a solo founder or a very small team, not hiring like an army of people. And again, as you're saying, like you don't care about like entering some winner take all market. Like you don't care about being a unicorn. Like you're happy making 10, 20, 50 grand a month and resting on your laurels there, maybe growing even further from there and figuring out what the next step is. And it's like obvious why this is inspiring to a lot of people because people like taking these baby steps that are meaningful life changes for them and they don't need to jump up to like a thousand X their salary right now. They're happy jumping up to five X their salary. That's a huge life changing event. And just to give like an example of a good micro SaaS company. There is Jordan O'Connor, who I really need to have on the podcast because his company's super cool. But he's got this company, Closet Tools. He's kind of motivated by just being in a ton of debt from college. I think he had like 100K of debt from college. So three years ago, he learned how to code. Two years ago, he made his first sale from Closet Tools. And now, two years later, he's doing like 40 grand a month in revenue as a solo founder with no employees, which is amazing. And he did this while he had a full time job. He's married, he's got two kids. And he's a solo founder. So it's one of the more impressive like ideas of a micro SaaS story. And it's Closet Tools is basically just this browser extension you install that helps you make sales on Poshmark, which is this social commerce marketplace where you can kind of buy and sell your clothes. So he's helping consumers make money and you know, attaching himself to this much bigger platform. And he's able to carve out like a really small niche and a pretty good living for himself. So what are you seeing with micro SaaS? And is this something that, you know, as an investor, is even interesting to you because maybe these companies can't get big enough to be investable? Yeah, I mean, first I'll say I love micro SaaS. I invented the term micropreneur back in 2009. You did. Because it was pre, uh, SaaS was just coming around, so I wasn't going to say micro SaaS because it just wasn't a thing yet. But my whole thing was I want to be a solo founder and run these really small software companies that throw off a ton of, of income and it's net profit. And I had one small SaaS app then. I had Hittail, which was a SEO keyword tool that was just me and a couple contractors. It was doing 20 to 30 grand a month at its peak. Um, and then Drip was originally going to be probably micro SaaS. It was going to be me and one or two other people. And of course, we got into a space where it became very competitive, and I, you know, had to ramp up. So I love, I love the idea. I love going into a tight niche. You read my first book, Start Small, Stay Small: A Developer's Guide to Launching a Startup, is all about find niches. There's power in niches. No one's there. Um, it's so much less competitive. You don't have to be as good a marketer. You don't have to have all the chops because you can just go in. Yeah. And back in the day, I was talking about la launching a lot because the book was written in 2008 to 2010. It was a lot of like. There is some subscription, but a lot of one-time sale stuff. But this is just, SaaS is just the new one-time sale, right? I mean, that's, it's software. Mm -hmm. It's all software. So yes, love the idea. Two, did it myself. Three, wrote a book essentially about it, you know, before it was called this. Um, so I, I'm a fan. I think there's a ton of advantages to it. And frankly, if you read the first two, two or three chapters of the, of the book, uh, you'll hear all of my thinking on why I believe that it's a great step one or step two business in the stair-step approach. It's just so much less competitive and get traction. Um, as an investor, yeah, it's to your point, we tend to invest in apps we think can hit at least seven figures in annual revenue. And usually it's, it's one, two, three million bucks is probably going to be a, a floor for us, somewhere in that range. Right. Just because if we're going to put in money at X valuation, something that gets to half a million dollars, $800,000 in revenue, 
you know, that's a great business and it can throw off some cash, but it doesn't necessarily, it, it's maybe, you've heard this term, it's maybe not an investable business. You just shouldn't raise capital, right. you know? So maybe someday there will be a fund that launches try to invest in microsas i there's a challenge there in that i think you'll have to take too much equity or i think the terms will have to be so founder unfriendly and these microsas are so easy to launch uh, i say easy they are they're not that capital intensive if you are if you use right. no coder if you're a technical founder that i'm just not sure that you need I would encourage you maybe don't do it with investors the first time. Do it on your own. Get out there. Get into a community to have support. Get in a mastermind to have support. Taking investors for what you think is going to be a small app, I almost think you should just learn it, get the experience, get the cash. They, they are so profitable, right? You can have 80, 90% net margins. That's what uh, Hittail was, 85, 90% net margin. It was so great. And um, yeah, so that's <laughs> those are my thoughts on it. I, I love that, that this exists. It's the best. I keep saying this is the best time in history to be a startup founder or to be a, a developer who knows how to market. I mean, there has literally, you know, maybe 10 years ago it was less competitive, but the tools weren't as good. And just with the advent of EC2 and all this stuff, it's so much easier to, to get started. Is there a, a path from a micro SaaS to, uh, let's say, a full SaaS? Like, do you oh, see yeah. companies that are generating, you know, eight figures in revenue and they started off with something that didn't seem like it could get it much bigger than, you know, seven figures? Well, I mean, I would say Drip started that way, right? Drip was going to be this micro SaaS. It was just an email capture widget. And then we added uh, autoresponders to it. And then we were like, oh, we should just become an ESP. That's a great space. Oh, now we should come marketing automation. And then we grew, grew, grew. And we sold it before, obviously before we hit eight figures in revenue. Um, but I also think, I don't, I don't know that you need to turn when I think of like Hittail, I sold Hittail when it was it was doing maybe in the in the 20k. I could have just started adding more SEO stuff on. It was a long tail SEO keyword tool. I could have added all the functionality of Moz or Ahrefs, just started stacking that on and turned it into it. It turns out I just wasn't that interested in the space, and I was off to right. I was off doing drip that way. So yes, I think you could take a micro SaaS. Potentially, it depends on the niche, depends on what the app is. I also think there's a huge advantage to having this asset that is throwing off a bunch of cash to help you maybe launch the next one that you might maybe more interested in, maybe in a more competitive space, you know, maybe taking advantage of some of the things that we've said earlier, or some people want to, some people don't, you can, you can exit these things because they are immensely profitable. If you have an app doing 20 grand a month in net profit, which for a micro SaaS, I mean, several, I've known several that do that, right? 20 grand a month. So that's almost a quarter of a million a year. You can get just under, let's say in the four X, net profit range, you're selling for almost a million dollars in cash. And if you've owned it for more than a year, that's long-term capital gain. So you're not paying income on that. You're paying long-term capital gains, which is smaller. So you're walking away with, depending on the state you live in, let's say $700,000, $800,000 in cash. That is a hell of a way to angel invest yourself, to friends and family fund yourself, yeah. you know, and the next thing. So I'm just saying these are the options. I, I don't know that you need to turn, you can turn your existing app into it or you can just use it to, you know, to kind of fund or give yourself the freedom to launch that next thing that you really are interested in doing. Another example that's not quite micro SaaS, but I do think it fits in this category of being something that's trying to sort of avoid the competition, not going for world domination, but just like trying to find a market where you've got almost this natural moat by, by niching down are these real world businesses where it's not just pure code, but like you're selling to like a local area. And I had uh, Sam Meaton on the podcast. He has a company called Crave Cookie, where him and his sister were like, let's bake cookies and sell them to people in our town. And they're doing like 100, 200 grand in revenue a month oh. with 50% margins with a cookie delivery company and like not even one of the biggest cities in California. And it's pretty like m remarkable to see. And like, he's writing like, a lot of SaaS. He's doing his own like internal delivery tools because he doesn't want to use Uber Eats or any of these other services that just like crush restaurants with their crazy cut of revenue that they take. But they're able to grow like through word of mouth. They're able to grow through PR with like the local media. So they're not like, oh, I need to get to the top of SEO. I need to be at the top of Google. I need to like outbid everybody on these like Facebook ads. They're like, no, no, no. We just need to do cool stuff to get in like the local news station, which is way, way easier than the sort of like global competition. What are you seeing with, with companies that are basically, you know, building with a foot in the real world? Is this like a trend that you think is sustainable or is it even something on your radar? Oh, I mean, it's. I'll say it's not something that that we have tended to invest in because um, oftentimes, like having something in the real world, means the margins are lower or that it's more capital intensive. But I, I'm almost thinking yeah. of like manufacturing your own, you know, device, a hardware device or something. So, and I just don't have expertise there. But 
absolutely the trend the moment that that subscription boxes became a thing whether it was subscription meal kits to subscription loot crate type things for every you know for star trek and star wars and dungeons and dragons to um the i think the the kind of the organic food movement and the slow food movement and the more natural health food movement fresh food movement the csas from you know the the community supported agriculture all of that getting internet enabled is incredible and yes absolutely it's a trend and i think that uh, the advent of these pop-up kitchens as well yeah have you heard about you know that where you can just yeah you and I cloud can, kitchens yep you and i can just like rent time in a commercial kitchen this was not possible five or ten years ago it was really really hard to do and now they're all over the place there's actually a startup called the food corridor that is SaaS for cloud kitchens and you know selling picks and shovels to these kitchens and i i think that that shows you that this this trend is not going down because I'm going to want to buy my artisan cookies from my local purveyor of cookies rather than yep. you know go to Whole Foods or go to Fresh Time or whatever and get something that's been sitting on a shelf for even even a few days. So yeah, I think the yeah. more we we can get back to those, what is it? It's there is it's this artisan, it's this free range, organic local buy. You know, yeah. it's bespoke yeah. kind of like. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a big trend, and I think it's it's cool because it's 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 adding more personality and individuality to to business. It's no longer like the kind of like everybody wants the McDonald's you know made for everybody experience. People right. want like the more individualized experiences, and in a way, even though these aren't like directly tech businesses, they're more like tech enabled businesses. The tech part of it helps them kind of niche down because you can find them online, you can find them on Instagram. There's an infinite number of distribution channels, and there's no sort of gatekeepers as there were like you know. 30 years ago before we really had the web. So I'm excited to see this. And I think, you know, your insight that people are building SaaS businesses for cloud kitchens ties into what you were saying earlier, which is like, hey, you don't actually have to be, you know, the original sort of innovator here. You can just build technology for other companies that are innovating. And when you see like a shift in the market, like if you're trying to catch a wave, like perhaps you see people are starting more of these businesses. And so you figure out what's the tech only SaaS business that you can build to support them. That's another good framework to think about. I think of, you know, the Loot Crate boxes, the subscription boxes. There are now several SaaSes that just help you manage, you know, that. I forget what they're called off the top of my head, but it's software to do that. And any of these new yeah. movements, you know, that's something that you can jump on board. Again, the risk is, well, Sell maybe, shovels. Totally. Picks and shovels. The risk is, oh, maybe the movement doesn't take off. Maybe the movement only lasts a year. Maybe the movement, whatever. But that's the risk you take. There's always a risk with, with any of this, you know, launching a SaaS. And then finally, promise is the last topic. You are running a company where you're investing in bootstrappers. And this is not something that, like, when I started Indie Hackers four years ago, I thought uh, was going to come to pass. It's pretty new. The whole model, as I understand it, is very dependent on being able to have a very high hit rate. Traditional venture capitalists don't care as much about having a high hit rate because there are such outsized gains from these unicorn companies that, you know, take over these winner take all markets that they can cover the losses from all the other companies that fail. And so they try to drive you towards you know, moving fast and breaking things and hiring as fast as you can. And they don't really care if you have this sort of binary outcome where you're either going to succeed wildly or fail. Whereas with what you're doing, like, you don't necessarily push people to go that hard, which is great and which makes it attractive if you're sort of an indie hacker-minded founder. But also that makes it harder for you as an investor because like, you need uh, almost all of the, the, the companies that you invest in to succeed in order for you to get your money back. So the question I have for you, like, is this, is this working? You know, is this a trend we're going to keep seeing? Are investors like yourself figuring out new ways to invest in these previously uninvestable, slower growth tech companies? I, I think so. I mean, when we launched Tiny Seed in 2018, the only fund that was doing anything even remotely similar, and we have quite a few differences, was was Indie.bc. And yep. we announced Tiny Seed, and we actually said in that announcement, we expect more to follow because this is a wave that is an underserved iceberg in the software industry. And you know, within the last three or four months, I think I've seen three or four funds launch, you know, with similar hypotheses. Maybe not exactly, but it it's a lot of people starting to look at this, the non-venture track stuff, right? It's the non-traditional VC. So yes, I think the trend will continue. Um so far, is it working? Yes. The based on revenue growth and internal rate of returns and calculations, early signs are that our models are accurate or underpredicted. I mean, you know, we had a worst case, best case, and a middle of right. the road, and we are definitely uh, above the middle of the road. Um, oh, cool! Sixteen months in, you know, eighteen months in. Um, but the growth of these—that's the thing. These, it's capital efficient. They're ambitious, capital efficient SaaS companies. They have recurring revenue. There's a lot of proven channels. There are playbooks and blueprints to do this. And you're right. 
we don't, we're not going to have, or we don't need that Dropbox or the Facebook or the Google, and we're probably not going to have any of the, you know, the Uber, any of those companies. But the hit rate on these companies, from my experience of, of watching these companies for the past 10 to 15 years, launching a couple of my own, is it is so much more of a repeatable uh, approach to launch this, again, one to 20, one to $30 million ARR company. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, I, I think we're, again, I think it's the best time in history because we have options now. You, hey, if you're an indie hacker and you don't want to deal with taking $120,000 from, from Tiny Seed being part of the batch, that's cool. Then, then do something, then do what we've always done, you know? Or if you want to go venture, then go do that too. And I think that's a big kicker of this investing in bootstrappers is we, and I think some, some of the other funds really want to keep your options open, right? That's what I wanted when we were growing drip is I want some funding without the strings attached. I want to raise a hundred thousand, 200,000, 300,000 dollars without having to then raise a series A, B, C and have an IPO. I really wanted to still maintain control, maybe be able to take out dividends, maybe be able to, um, you know, exit for, for millions or tens of millions, but not have to become a unicorn right. and have that not be a failure. And so that, that's really, uh, I think the goal and the, and the shift is well, shift is too strong because it's not like venture capital is going away. It's just another option in between right. there's bootstrapping, there's venture capital, and then there's this independent funding or, you know, whatever term we want to come up with. I call it now bootstrappers and mostly bootstrappers it, because, you know, a tiny seed company that takes 120 K is still mostly bootstrapped because they're extremely capital efficient and they're really just like a bootstrapped run company. They're not suddenly going out and having launch parties and hiring 20 employees. They're still, they're using that capital to grow, you know, in predictable fashions. Well, I'm pretty excited about the whole ecosystem and in particular what you're up to. I think uh, we're heading toward a world where it's gonna, it's looking very different than the world looked 20, 30 years ago. I think it's just increasingly common for people to kind of build things and get rich and control sort of their own fate as indie hackers and founders, um, or as just creators using other platforms built by others. And it's it's pretty exciting to see that this funding model can actually work because that just means it's going to be easier. It's just another avenue for people to actually get into this. And I'm hoping, you know, 10 years from now, we look back and the world's completely unrecognizable and we're wondering why so many people work jobs they hated uh, in the past rather than just, you know, getting online and being a creator of some sort and figuring out, you know, how to, how to build a successful business. And I think people who are getting started now are, uh, it might feel a little bit late to the game. They might feel like SaaS is, is competitive and crowded, but like I think as this conversation has shown, uh, it really isn't. There's a lot of different ways to start. And again, 10 years from now, people who didn't start today will probably think, oh man, that was the golden age. I really should have started you know, in 2020. That was the best time to start, which is what they're saying now about 10 years ago. And it's what they were saying 10 years ago about 10 years before. Like That, that trend's never going to end. So uh, Rob, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Let us know what you've seen in the market. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Tiny Seed? Absolutely. So if you're a founder and you're, you might be interested in applying for our next batch, we should be opening uh, applications in January of 2021. So head to tinyseed.com and you can just get on the email list and we'll let you know. If you happen to be an accredited investor and are interested in investing in early stage SaaS, we are raising fund two right now. Um, and that's a way to take an investment and have it invested across hundreds, it's diversification, across hundreds of, of early stage B2B SaaS companies. And you can see an example of 20, you know, the 23 we've invested in so far at tinyseed.com. Uh, but our whole investment thesis is about just the value of this space and just how much we want to you know, raise all the boats in essence. So tinyseed.com slash thesis, if you might be interested in doing that. All right. Thanks again, Rob. Absolutely, sir. My pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening and as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>